0: up here. It's okay. We, is they're they're analyzing. Oh, look, I can see it in the back. That's awesome. Oh, now it's in the front. Okay. Sorry, this is not going to go well. Is it? There we go. There's Kato's. Yeah, they did. Some of my students were calling themselves Swifties. Anybody here you know consider yourself a Swiftie? No, yeah, me neither. Um Honest, honest truth is, I couldn't tell you a single song that Taylor Swift sings. I, I just don't know her music at all. But it kind of caught me off guard that there were so many of my students that were looking at her as an artifact. And, and I've seen all kinds of things since then about how she's been the artist of the year and the most impressive person of the year and all that kind of stuff. The thing that's a little bit crazy to me is that it seems like the way human culture kind of works is that when somebody gets enamored at someone, like Taylor Swift, that they start talking about it are talking about her, and then somebody else starts to pay attention. And before long, you have the media picking up on it, and everybody's talking about it, and she's making movies where she's just going up and doing her concerts on on, on a movie. All these things are happening to draw attention to this artist. You guys are probably going to think I'm crazy, but I kind of think the same kind of thing happened in the days of the gospel. You know, that I kind of think there was this sense of people finding these people that they were drawn to and and the word just kind of spread so that everybody was talking about the same person. You're probably going to think I'm totally crazy, but in a way, I think that John the Baptist was kind of the Taylor Swift of his day, (laughs) That, that, that he was somebody that just was being drawn. In a way, John the Baptist is kind of a minor character in the story of Jesus. I I mean, you know, we know that he was the forerunner, baptized Jesus, but then he kind of gets out of the way and everything else sort of happens without him. And it's really easy for us just to dismiss him. But it's crazy because every one of the four gospel writers spends lots of time talking about this guy. In fact... Luke begins his gospel, after just a couple of verses of introduction, begins his gospel with the description of not Jesus' birth, but the birth of John the Baptist. There was even... I preached with you guys a couple of weeks ago, preached about about John 1, and I totally ignored the, the verses that talk about John the Baptist in the middle of that. But as it's talking about Jesus as the Word, who is the light of the world, that there are these verses that just pop up where John starts mentioning, almost in a way that seems odd, John the Baptist. He says, okay, he was not the light, but he bore witness to the light. Do that why would he say that John was not the light? Well of course we know that Jesus was the light why would, why would he even say that he wasn't? Mark says something that I think is really interesting when he starts dealing with this. he says that everybody he probably means that in a hyperbolic kind of way probably not every single person but everybody in Judea, and in Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem would have been in Judea, but he talks about the city because that's where everybody would come. You know, it's like if you're going go to go to a music to music or a play or something like that, everybody's going to go to LA. We're not all going out to Ontario where I live to go to, to know that kind of stuff. We're going to go into the big city. So he emphasizes the importance of Jerusalem, and he says everybody in Judea and Jerusalem is going out into the wilderness to hear John and to be baptized by him there's this almost taylor swift like thing that's happening where everybody is talking about John the Baptist to the point that it catches the attention of the religious leaders in Jerusalem and they start to ask questions about what's going on that everybody is paying attention to this man. Well, I want to pick up where we left off when I was here a couple of weeks ago. With John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse uh, 19 and go through verse 28. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, "Who are you?" He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, "I am not the Christ." And they asked him, "What then? Are you Elijah?" He said, "I am not. Are you the prophet Are you the prophet?" He answered, "No." And they said to him, "Who are you?" We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. But these things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. It's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? That these men are coming from the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to go out into the wilderness just to get some report of John. Now, they don't ask him, are you the Christ? I think there probably was some scuttle around the people who were saying, could this be the anointed of God? Could this be the one who is the Christ? And they're wondering if he's going to claim that. But they wouldn't have believed him if he said that he was any more than they believed Jesus when he claimed to be the Christ, that they had no interest in that. What they wanted was they wanted to be able to pigeonhole him and say, what are you doing? And if you claim something that we don't think is right, then we're you're going to be in trouble with the whole religious authority here in, in Judea. So they're going out to him and asking him these questions. They, they, they ask several questions. First of all, they say, who are you? Now, of things that they ask John about. Are you the Christ is the first one that he comes to. And and clearly John doesn't claim that. He says no. But then they move to the next question. They said, so are you Elijah? This seems like kind of a strange thing for them to ask. But here's what's going on. In uh, uh, In the book of Malachi, Malachi offers a statement that could be read, and, and many in that day believed that it was. It could be read that when the Messiah comes, that Elijah will come back. And because Elijah was one of the two people in the Old Testament that the Bible says didn't die, that he was taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire, that it made lots of sense to them to say, okay, so he's up in heaven with God, didn't die, he was chariot of fire. So when... The Messiah comes, chariot of fire brings him right back, and he's going to come right back where he is. So they they kind of thought that that was a possibility, that one of the ways that they would know that the Messiah was there was the coming of Elijah. So are you Elijah? No. I'm not the prophet that was taken up in a chariot of fire. That's not who I am. He denies that as well. So then they go on and say, so are you the prophet? Probably. They're talking about something that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18. Moses said at one point that I'm going to go away and there will be a prophet like me who will come back. I'm not sure that he meant that as an end time prophecy, but many in that day had found that verse and says, there's going to be another prophet that's going to come. So, essentially what you've got are all three of these positions are about these 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 end times these 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 uh, 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 final days kind of prophets where they're saying if you're claiming to be one of these people that changes everything we need to know that John says I'm not <laughs> now these guys get a little upset at this point and they're like okay look The people that sit us want to know something, so you've got to tell us something. And so John says, okay, here it is. The voice of one crying in the wilderness (laughs) makes trade a path for the Lord. Interesting, right? He's actually referring back to Isaiah 40, and I want to get back to that. But I want to kind of go through this other question that they asked, just just to finish this up. that, That Once they've done that, they've said, okay, so if you're not, the messiah and you're not elijah and you're not the prophet why are you baptizing yeah. baptism was an odd thing in that time and ritual washings were very typical in the old testament and in Jewish religion so it wouldn't be all that unusual for somebody to do some kind of religious washing where They felt guilty, they would go and and dunk themselves in the water or something like that as a way of sort of doing spiritual cleansing or something like that. The, the, The religious washings weren't all that uncommon. And even more to the point, when someone was a Gentile and wanted to become a Jew, they typically had to be circumcised, had to follow the laws of God, but then they also were typically baptized some debate about whether that was necessary for somebody to do, but it was expected that you would be baptized. But generally speaking, it was the person who baptized themselves, somebody else didn't take them out and immerse them in the water like we tend to do today. So baptism wasn't wrong per se. But what they're looking at is they're looking at the authority that John the Baptist is using to baptize, you, you understand what I'm saying? That if he's the Messiah, then he has the right to pronounce change, that everybody needs to be repentant, that everybody needs to come into a new kingdom, that everything is going to change, and he has the right to baptize. If he's the Elijah, then maybe the same thing exists, or the prophet, maybe the same thing exists. That if he has this eschatological ability to sort of pronounce a new kingdom, a new coming of God to this whole thing, then maybe he has the right to, to baptize doesn't. So was it wrong for him to baptize? Not exactly. The question that they're asking is by what authority do you do this? John gives him this really funny answer. He says, well, you think that's something? Wait until you see somebody who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then he refers to me as just baptizing with water, but there's one beyond me that's coming. Now, I love the fact goes back to Isaiah 40 in this passage. And if you've got a Bible, you may want to flip over to to that passage to look at it with me. Um, In most cases, when the prophets, Elijah or anybody else, started talking about the coming of Yahweh, the coming of God, in most cases, it was bad news, you know, that if God is coming, it's because you're in trouble and he's coming to dispense judgment on you. In most cases, that was what the prophets Listen to what it says. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Not watch out, you're in trouble, repent, do something different. Comfort. Comfort my people. Hmm. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of our sins, their punishment is done. There is nothing that God is going to do to punish them at this point that he is coming to bring comfort. And then we get into the part that, that, uh, uh, that, that John the Baptist quotes. As, as a voice cries out, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, and even the ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do do you hear what he's saying? I mean, this is pretty incredible. He's saying, look, God is coming, so prepare a way through the desert. It's really kind of funny to me because in Isaiah, when he starts talking about this, that every translation that I looked at translates it exactly this way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight a path for the Lord. Where in the New Testament, when they're talking about it, it always does it the opposite way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight a path for the Lord. You know, in this case, what Isaiah is talking about is a highway going through the desert to Jerusalem. It's a clearing for the king to be able to come in. Obviously, he's talking about figurative language here, but he's saying the mountains need to be blasted down so that there's no mountains that this path has to go over that the king is going to be able to go straight in. The valleys have to be filled in so that there's no dips in the road for him to go in. The the gravel is cleared out of the way. The path is smooth. That Everything about this highway is designed so that the God who brings comfort can come to his people. And that's That John the Baptist is painting for us about Jesus. That his job is to make this highway smooth. So that people will respond to the message of the Messiah. That the Messiah comes not to condemn us, but to comfort us. That's okay, that's okay. Been one of those mornings anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So how does that happen? How does John, how does his message begin to prepare the highway, prepare the road, smooth the road? You know, certainly he's not talking about going in and you know, knocking down the, the Mount of Olives so that there's a smoother path to come in. So, 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 what is he talking about? I like the way that Luke describes it. Luke tells the people to be baptized because of repentance of their sin, and then he tells them to live a life that acts out the repentance that they've come to. To live a life that does that. So, Luke says then, there's this crowd of people who say, what should we do then? What are we supposed to do if this is the case? And John says, if you've got two tunics, give one of them to somebody who doesn't have one. Essentially, what he's saying is that there's a tendency for us to spend way too much of our time looking at our own needs provisions and our own stuff, and he says you need to pay more attention to the people that are outside that need your help instead of just hoarding things to yourself. That he's telling them, turn away from your sin and be more concerned about people. Funniest thing about this is that the crowd <laughs> must include everybody, but all of a sudden the tax collectors say, "Okay, but what does it mean for us?" <laughs> now, I mean, you guys know the tax collectors were hated by the Jews; that they were reviled, that they were collaborators with Rome, that they were thieves. Essentially, was the way that they made their money, and they came out to be baptized with John. Do you get the picture? That we have crowds of people, but it includes not just the average run-of-the-mill fishermen and carpenters and that kind of stuff, but it includes tax collectors that are coming out and being baptized by John. And he's saying, what shall we do? And he says, don't take any more from anybody than you're permitted to take. That essentially he's telling them you need to be fair. Treat people fairly. Luke says that the soldiers come out and say, what does this mean for us? Soldiers. Now, I don't think these are Roman soldiers. There doesn't seem to be anything in the context that would indicate that these were Romans that were coming out to see John the Baptist. It probably is either. Soldiers that belonged to the household of Herod, in other words, the palace guard for Herod, his soldiers, or it was probably soldiers that were temple guard, that, that those who were religious guards that were under the command of the Pharisees, that probably we're talking about Jews who were soldiers, not Roman soldiers at this point. Nevertheless, these soldiers come out and say, "So what does this mean for us?" And John says, "Don't use your position to take money from anybody else or to, to, to cause harm to anybody else. In fact, don't use your position in any way that would abuse the, the trust that you've been given. Essentially, he's saying you should not abuse your trust, but use your position to help other people, not to hurt other people. That he's talking to them about the importance of these people turning away from their sins and then living out a life that's by the kind of repentance that, they had, that he had asked them to do. There's another verse that I wanted us to look at in Luke as well. It's actually backed up a couple of chapters from that. It's during his birth narrative. It's one of the things that the angel said to Zachariah, John the Baptist's father, about who John is going to be. He says in Luke, Luke chapter 1, and he will turn many of the children, talking about John the Baptist, he will turn many of the, of the children of Israel to their children. That these people who've claimed to be followers of Yahweh all their life, that He's going to turn their hearts to Him. And then He says, and He will go before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. What is that about? I think what He means is that fathers are going to quit worrying about their own lives and start investing in the nation. That I think he's talking about John calling his people to be a people that care for the next generation, that invest in the generation that's growing up. That he's calling them to invest in the next generation, not merely to be concerned about their own lives. And then he says, and the disobedient will turn to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people that they're going to turn away from the stuff that they're doing and embrace the wisdom of the just. And he's saying, if you guys will live this way, then you'll be ready for the Messiah. And it's not so much the clearing the rubble off the roads that was important for the coming of the Messiah, but clearing the rubble out of I, I, I'm, I think that this is this is such an incredible message, and really, I think it's an important message for us, too. Look, look, we're at the cusp of moving into a new year of 2024. I don't know how much you guys have spent thinking about 2024, but I listen to too much talk radio, and all of a sudden, it's just like scary stuff, like this presidential election. We've got two contenders that are both pretty much hated by most people, and there's this, this discussion of what's going to happen, and it seems to be ripping the country apart rather than pulling us together in the way that we're doing that, that there's this animosity and contention that's happening that's even ripping churches apart, which is insane to me. And not only that, but we're seeing the uprising of global events all over the place, at least in some places. That are affecting not just those regions, Israel and, and Gaza, or, or or Ukraine, or or even Afghanistan, but we're seeing global conflicts that are drawing us into that kind of fire, like like the Yemenis, a little you know people that are living on the edge of the Sinai Peninsula, shutting down traffic coming. This is just an crazy time in terms of global politics, and I'm not sure that having one president over the other makes any difference in that, and then. There's this level of economic uncertainty that we live with that 2024 is looking like it's going to be a crazy ride for all of us. But i got to tell you, I'm not sure that those global situations are the most important things that we face. I, I told some of you guys over breakfast that, uh, uh, that my sister-in-law was diagnosed over Christmas with leukemia. Um, fortunately, it's treatable. But for the next five years, her focus is not going to be on what happens in the United States or what happens in Israel, but what's happening in her own body. And many of us are facing or may face situations like that. My friends, I just say this to say that in 2024, there is a desperate need for the Messiah. Maybe the message of John is an important message for us. Maybe in the way that John called the people there to clean the rubble out of their lives, maybe he calls us to do the same thing. The Messiah has come, and the Messiah has brought comfort, and he continues to be here, and he continues to bring comfort. But I think that our country is desperately in need of a movement where we would see the Messiah coming in in, in, in in force, coming with power, coming to move the lives of people. And I gotta tell you, that in every major movement of God that I know anything about, it didn't start with lots of lost people turning to Christ, it started with people who belonged to God, people kind of like the Jews that. Retuning their lives to Christ. I think that there is a desperate need for people like you and me to clear the rubble out of our own lives so that people can see Jesus in us. So, so, so that we're not just living a life like everybody else with a little less sin. It's kind of not what we're but that we're living lives of dedication to Christ that causes us to be markedly different in the way that we act, in the way that we treat other people, in the way that we respond. That, that, that maybe, just like the angel told Zechariah about John, maybe the goal is for us to be investing in a new generation of believers. some researchers are calling this generation of young people the open generation. Because, frankly, they're open to pretty much anything. Now, the good news for us is that if that's true, that a vast majority of the number of young people in this generation are open to the message of Christ. That they're open to hearing about Christ. They're open to lots of things. But whether they respond to the message of Christ may have to do with how much we we share it, we live lives in front of them, it causes them to be hungry to know the God that we serve. Maybe he would have us to retool our lives so that just as he told, uh, just as the angel told Zachariah about John, that we would move from being people who are just walking through life to people who are investing in the world. become a people who care more about the message of God than anything else. Maybe he's calling us to retune our hearts to Christ. 2024 may be a difficult year for many. We need the preparation that John called us to, to be the kind of people that smooth the way so that other people can see him coming, not as a God who judges, or a God who's harsh, or a God who punishes, but as a God who brings comfort. Pray with me. Father God, the message of John just just is is so overwhelming to us that that this message of repentance would draw people from all over the kingdom to come to repentance and to prepare a way for the Messiah. Father, we would ask that you might make us the kind of people that do the same smoothing of the highway so that you would have an easy way to walk through our lives in order to bring your We pray, God, that you'd help us to be ready to clear out the rubble of our lives. To invest in other people. To care about the things that you care about and invest our lives in the things that you invest in. And Father, to walk closely with your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in this strong name.